From WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH Radio Boston, this is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. Hard to believe that's the last time I'll say that. It's been seven and a half years since Living Lab launched. Some 800-plus interviews covering everything from black holes to sexual harassment. Now, Living Lab Radio is going out of production so that I can focus all of my attention on one particular issue, climate change. And so this is our final show. Today, we're revisiting highlights from a handful of memorable interviews chosen by myself and producer Elsa Partan. They aren't necessarily our newsiest or hardest-hitting reporting. They're conversations that left us with not only new knowledge, but a nugget of wisdom that we still carry with us. We'll start with John Kabat-Zinn. For those familiar with mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn needs no introduction. He literally invented mindfulness-based stress reduction, and he's the founding executive director of the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He teaches mindfulness techniques around the world, and I asked him how much his teaching has changed in 40 years. That's a really interesting question, and I guess I'll give you a kind of a zen, non-dual answer. Not at all and enormously. (laughs) Not at all in the sense that it's the same thing. It always is. It's like attention and awareness, and attention brought to everything in one's life in an open-hearted, spacious way, Uh, and and the awareness that arises from that. Uh, On the other hand, you can't marinate in that kind of practice on a regular daily basis through formal meditation practice and bringing it into your daily life for 40 years without it changing you in certain ways. So, Well, that's the whole point. Right? It, well, in a way, it is, or to actually not so much change you, but to uh, allow you to actually be comfortable in your own skin, no matter what's going on in your life. And that would mean, at times, very stressful pain conditions, illness, I mean, everything that arises as part of the human condition, how to be in wiser relationship with that so that we're not in some sense crushed by uh, the eventuality of things that come our way as we grow older, as we lives get more complicated, as things speed up and so forth. So I think that mindfulness has reached a point and Let me also say this is a formal meditation practice. It's not just some concept or philosophy or good idea or catechism. It's it's like exercising a muscle. You have to actually exercise it in order for it to develop. And and, uh, so mindfulness, let's be very clear, the more popular it gets, the less people understand. It's only the hardest thing in the world for us human beings to be mindful for even one moment, never mind stringing two moments of presence together in an open-hearted, spacious way. We have this capacity. What people don't understand is it's not a special state you try to achieve, like now I'm going to strive to get into some mindful state. It's like, no, mindfulness is like you're in some sense what the neuroscientists would call your default mode if you really have cultivated it, and that is open-hearted, spacious presence. I was going to ask you to, to perhaps give us some sort of exercise or a taste of how you would practice it. Is there a way to to do that in, I mean, you know, yeah, we're not going to spend I'd the next lo- hour meditating. Well, uh, we- yeah, we, we might be, only you'd have to rotate your ideas about what meditation are. In fact, we, we will be, I'm thinking, spending the next hour meditating in the sense that, you know, your job is to put stuff out through the airwaves and people are listening to it. And hopefully, you know, if it's interesting, as your program always is, and I listen to it a lot, uh, it it. It sets up resonances in one's own 
being in one's own mind, but also in one's own heart and in one's own body, because meaning does that. And, and it shows us things that we don't already know. So if we're truly listening to the radio, to this program, or to anybody, or even to the waves coming in at, at the shore, if we're truly listening, that's a moment of mindful presence. How is mindfulness different from relaxation? Okay. Uh, I like to say that mindfulness is not relaxation spelled differently. Uh, <laughs> for one thing, relaxation is a kind of state of mind and body that when you're experiencing it, you feel completely at home and relaxed, Okay. And when you don't experience it, you think you've failed in some way. If you're trying to do a relaxation exercise and you're not relaxed at the end, you'll feel, oh, either there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with the exercise or there's something wrong with the person who's leading the exercise. So, in fact, feeling stressed could be part of mindfulness? You got it. Yeah. It's like I say to people often uh, that we're going to teach you how to be so relaxed it's okay to be tense. Can you feel what that does? It expands the number of dimensions with which we have to work that allow us to be in wise relationship with the fact that this might be a very stressful, time-pressured moment. And if you're in the sort of media business, of course, you have lots of stressful, time-pressured moments. Uh, But how you are in relationship to them, there you have a lot of uh, freedom. You have a lot of control. And studies have shown that meditation mindfulness really does produce both structural and functional changes in the brain. Can you describe some of those changes? Yeah, uh, this is a a new field in science known as neuroplasticity. When I was a graduate student, uh, it didn't exist. The notion that the brain is actually an organ of experience. It's the most complex arrangement of matter in the known universe with 200 billion neurons, another 200 billion glial cells in there that... Nobody really knows what they're doing, but they're not there by accident. I mean, this is like right inside our little old heads, you know, an infinite number of trillions of synaptic connections, and they are continually changing on the basis of our experience. And actually, the structure of the brain has been shown to change and is often driven by repetitive experience. So learning involves neuroplastic changes. Sarah Lazar and her and her group at the Mass General Hospital have shown that meditators tend to have thicker brains in certain regions that have to do with this kind of perspective taking, uh, navigating the complexities of life and so forth, uh, emotional regulation, attention regulation. Also, the amygdala, which is in the threat reaction center in the centers in the brain, they get thinner with eight weeks of MBSR. And this is, again, the work from... So does, um, does that, I mean, it, it sounds Sarah like Lazar's thicker brain. brain would be better. So we're doing yeah, more and of the meditators, more decision-making and less threat reaction. Exactly. And, and long-term meditators, there's less decline in the brain over age, it seems. It gives such remarkable benefits to the quality of life that we live from moment to moment and how it affects our mental health, our emotional health, our physical health, and our sense of deep interconnectedness with the rest of the world, with other people and the planet, that even if there was no science of like the amygdala shrinks and the hippocampus gets thicker and so forth, I'd still be practicing because... There's a certain way in which we know that inwardly, and that inner satisfaction is much more important than putting up a before and after brain scan 
Uh, but we're beginning to get increasing evidence that meditation practice, especially if you do it on a regular basis, is really, really good for the brain. That was mindfulness expert John Kabat-Zinn, originally recorded in May 2016. One of the things that I love about science is the ability of a community to hold space for what may seem like contradictory ideas, working to figure out how they might fit together. Case in point, mindfulness and mind-wandering. As important and powerful as mindfulness can be, there's also evidence that letting go and letting the mind wander can boost learning and creativity. Jonathan Schooler is a professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of California, Santa Barbara. We spoke earlier this year about his research on the nature of mind-wandering and its potential benefits. The bottom line is, is that your mind is always doing something. It's always somewhere. And when you're not actively engaging it in something, it will find its own activities. Typically, thinking about current concerns or uh, other sort of pressing issues, uh, the mind just naturally goes there. And uh, there's even um, a network of brain areas that uh, are distinctly activated when people are mind-wandering called the default mode network. And it's been found that when people are not given a task to do, this series of different areas in the brain tends to be especially active. Well, Jonathan Schooler, as you're just alluding to, your research has shown that there are benefits to mind-wandering. In particular, it seems that after taking in some new information, maybe kind of pausing and letting your mind wander can really help with learning. Do we understand how that works? Well, we're still understanding the positive role that mind-wandering can play in everyday life, but there do seem to be a number of different contexts in which it can be helpful. One uh, is when you're stumped on a problem. A good example would be if you had a tip-of-the-tongue experience and you mm. just can't think of a particular word. If you keep struggling to come up with that word, it, it's, you'll just, it'll evade you. But if you pause and uh, just move on, do something else, your mind will wander and then pop, the word comes to mind. And we find that this isn't just the case for long-lost words. It can be the case for uh, solutions that creative individuals are searching for. So we studied creative writers and creative physicists and asked them every day to report when they had their ideas. And we found that about 20% of their ideas happened when they were neither at work nor were they actively pursuing the problem at the time. For example, in the shower uh, or gardening uh, or driving their car. And when they had uh, ideas in this situation, they were as creative as the ones that they had at their desk but they were more likely to involve an aha experience where they seemed to sort of pop out of the blue and critically more likely to involve overcoming an impasse of some sort. So some challenge in the creative process that they'd been run up against was somehow more easily overcome or, or came to mind when they were mind wandering. So it seems that mind wandering may be particularly helpful for allowing us to overcome impasses. It's easy enough, though, to say to somebody who is struggling with a challenge, okay, don't obsess about it. Just give yourself some downtime and maybe an answer will just come to you. Uh, but it's not necessarily easy to put into practice to say, okay, I'm facing a challenge. I think I'll do nothing. Um, are, are there ways to, I don't know, formulize or, or kind of mind wander deliberately? Are there ways that you can promote this mental process that might lead to creativity and, and unexpected solutions? 
Well, that's a great question, and that's one that we're actively pursuing right now. And if listeners have suggestions about strategies or techniques that they've used to make that happen, we'd love to hear them because <laughs> um, this really is a, an exciting and open area. We have a number of speculations about the kinds of things that um, we think may be important. One thing is that all mind-wandering is not the same. We find that creative individuals are particularly likely to mind-wander about topics that they find interesting, about problems on which they're curious about solutions, about strange or unusual imagery, about meaningful ideas. And collectively, I like to think of this kind of curious mind-wandering as mind-wondering. Mm -hmm. And I think that that particular kind of mind-wandering, cultivating thinking about topics that you find curious and interesting and stimulating uh, may be the kind of mind-wandering that creative individuals do, that we know, and may actually be causally useful in uh, promoting creative ideas. I mean, it's almost like a, a guided or focused kind of mind-wandering, not completely wandering free, but within a, a certain realm, a certain topic area. Well, it's, it's more sort of um, priming yourself to um, just let your mind freely explore areas that it's curious about. There's also research which has found that in general, when people are mind-wandering, they're less happy than when they're actively attending to the task. But hmm. if people are mind-wandering about something that they're especially interested in, they're more happy. So if you can be mind-wandering about things that you're curious about, that seems to be a particularly sort of positive kind of mind-wandering. And the idea is to sort of cultivate uh, a perspective where your mind naturally lands on topics that you find interesting. Now, the other thing that may be very important is to have sort of a light touch where your mind, you let your mind jump from topic to topic and not just be stuck on one particular thing. So if you're actually just thinking about how am I going to solve this problem, how am I going to solve this problem, then you're really not mind-wandering. That's now your task. You're now trying to solve this problem. But if you're just allowing your mind to lightly uh, touch on one topic and then bounce to another topic, that sort of changing of perspectives, changings of topics, lightness of touch of the thinking may help to promote creative insights. Besides the practical benefits of creativity, problem-solving, learning, you've also said that you think that understanding mind-wandering might help us understand consciousness itself. How so? Yeah, well, mind-wandering, of course, is all about the stream of consciousness. And so when we start to study mind-wandering, we're really looking at how consciousness flows through time. And consciousness was a, a bad word uh, in psychology, surprisingly, for a long time. It was all about behavior. And then even once we started thinking about cognition, people were very reluctant to say anything about consciousness. But consciousness ultimately is the thing of which each one of us is most intimately familiar with. And by refining the techniques for studying mind-wandering and learning that you can ask people about the contents of their thoughts and get reports that correspond in meaningful ways to all the other indirect indices, we can begin to understand how consciousness 
evolves, how the thinking and thoughts of consciousness evolve over time. And more generally, appreciating the great value in understanding consciousness. Personally, I think consciousness is one of the greatest, most uh, remarkable puzzles left to science, understanding how this three-pound meatloaf is capable of producing experience is just remarkable. Jonathan Schooler is professor of psychological and brain sciences at UC Santa Barbara. Up next, tripping people over and over and over in order to develop better prosthetic legs. Living Lab Radio continues after a short break. This is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. This is our final episode, so we're revisiting highlights from several of our favorite interviews. Personally, I love it when our interviews make me, and hopefully you, laugh. After all, science can be fun, and even funny, while still being important. Shane King is a graduate student at Vanderbilt University whose work developing better prosthetic legs is a prime example. There's nothing funny about the fact that amputees are 200 times more likely to trip and fall and get injured than able-bodied peers. But there is a certain dark humor in tripping study volunteers over and over and over in the lab to understand how it happens and how to prevent it. And then there's the fact that my conversation with Shane King aired on April 1st of this year. We started with a quick update on where prosthetic technology stands. At this point, if someone's wearing pants that covers their leg, a lot of times people won't even notice that someone's using a prosthesis if it's well-tuned and well-fitted to their height. It, it looks like normal motion as long as it's not anything too arduous. So if you're just walking over level ground in the office or on a sidewalk, it's hard to even say that you could uh, recognize it if you can't actually see the device itself. And yet handling the possibility of being tripped, handling obstacles that might stumble someone is, is still a challenge for these legs, right? Definitely, definitely. So the obvious one that affects all legs, no matter what, is that people who use these devices don't get that same feeling that someone who has both legs gets when they hit an obstacle. You feel it right away. You get this reflexive response. At best, with a prosthesis, you feel the vibrations up through your residual limbs. So it's a slow response if you even notice it all. What ends up happening a lot of times is people start to hop on their unaffected leg until they can get back into their rhythm and bring their uh, prosthesis back out in front of them again, and they can start to land on it. And even then, once you start to land on it, it's a slow transition back to walking. A lot of times they have to stop and recover and readjust. Currently, um, people with transfemoral amputation are 200 times more likely to fall than their H-match healthy equivalents. So it's a lot, lot higher risk of falling and then subsequently a lot higher risk of injuries that come out of falling. So our hope is that by meeting in the middle, we'll be able to reduce that by a significant amount. Hmm. Well, Shane King, I wonder in in deciding to, to try to work on this challenge of making prosthetic legs that would better be able to handle the challenges of encountering an obstacle and not tripping, ideally not falling, at what point did you realize that in order to do this, we're going to have to actually trip people over and over and over to understand the problem? So we, we knew that pretty much right from the get-go. We didn't know exactly how we were going to do it, and that was sort of what the first year or so of, of my graduate school and my co-contributor, Mara Eveld's graduate school program was, was just developing this device so that we could actually have a test bed for what we were hoping to design with the 
actual robotic leg itself. So describe this system, because it's not by any means simple. You, you've got so many different things wrapped into this complete system in order to be able to have volunteers who have to be repeatedly tripped without knowing that it's coming, and yet kept safe enough that they don't actually fall and, and hurt themselves. Right. So there's like the physical apparatus that we created, which is essentially a ramp with a big steel block on it. So it's it's just like a sort of, we call it a roller coaster because it's these two acrylic tracks and this 35 pound solid steel block has mm. four bearings that kind of look like, or four sets of bearings. It's like a stack, but they kind of look like roller coaster wheels that lock into this channel. And we have an electromagnet and when we release that electromagnet, this block slides down the ramp so smoothly that you can't even feel the vibrations because that was a major issue in previous studies as well as in our initial like pilot designing. Because the um, person would then know it was coming. Exactly. So if there was any vibration at all, people would at the very least kind of get this like, is that? And then they would like stiffen up. Or if it was enough, right. we had some early testing where people would just step right over it. As soon as they felt it, they would step right over it. And so it's amazing that, that we respond that intuitively and that quickly to right. any possible idea that there might be an obstacle in our way. Right. And it doesn't hurt that people were, especially initially before we figured out how to keep people's minds off the task, people were a little stressed. Certain subjects, at least, <laughs> were a little stressed and high anxiety about it. That walking sounds a little. like an understatement to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was definitely some that, that didn't have a, uh, a lot of fun doing it. A lot of high knees walking and like really lifting your, your toes up a lot as you walked. And so we had to come up with some pretty fun ways to get people to sort of calm down and not think about it. So how did you do that? Um, so obviously couldn't have you, the subjects, uh, looking at the block. So for that, we use dribble goggles. So like what they train children to dribble basketballs with, where they just block your lower field of view. The final sort of piece that we have there is we make the, we make the subjects do serial sevens, which is um, essentially just we give them a random large number and they count backwards by sevens. So... Super grueling. It's always everyone's least favorite part, and it keeps them really preoccupied, though. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I could count backward by sevens and walk at the same time. It's definitely harder than walking and chewing gum. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's tough. People are always really self-conscious, and they're like, oh, you're not going to make sure I'm correct, are you? And I'm like, oh, no, no, don't worry. We're just going to make sure you're not counting by like ones or twos. So you managed to line up subjects to actually volunteer to be tripped over and over and over close to 200 times never know it was coming being tripped at all these different points in their walking gait so that you can figure out what, what tripping looks like the mechanics of it maybe how we handle it and i understand you actually yourself volunteered to uh in, in the development you had this done to yourself. And I can imagine this could go two ways. It could be incredibly stressful, bordering on traumatic, or it could be kind of hysterically funny that you're just constantly tripping. <laughs> oh, yeah. What was it, it like to actually do this? It definitely went both ways at times. It was, uh, it, it was especially in the beginning, it was a little more of that traumatic nature where it was, <laughs> when it was the first, the first time is always really big. So you're you're really worried about. I remember I I definitely put it off. I think I was the last of our three initial pilot testers to go. And for us pilot testers, it was definitely a few hundred times each. I think one of our one of our lab mates one day, I think we stumbled him like 70 times in one day. Oh, um, my goodness. So, so there's definitely these large 
large amounts of tripping and stumbling ourselves that was going on. So by the end, it became a lot more, a lot more rhythmic almost. You were, you were quite like it wasn't that you were responding different because it's still a reflexive response, but that anxiety goes away. So you're not you're not worried about it. You're not as stressed about it. If anything, you get a little more relaxed and a little bit more like you probably normally would be when you trip. But it definitely gets funny going back and watching the videos of, of <laughs> ourselves doing it. Maybe a little bit of humor factor in tripping people over and over for research, but serious and important research. Shane King of Vanderbilt University, a graduate student who has developed a system that does trip people over and over, but in order to develop better prosthetic legs. Shane, thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. There are some issues that everybody seems to have an opinion about. The time we spend on smartphones and other digital devices is one of them. There's been a lot of concern that social media in particular may be driving a mental health crisis among American teens. Earlier this year, a study grabbed headlines because it concluded that social media's negative impact may actually be relatively small. Now, it was one study, but it was based on a lot of data and asked a lot of different questions. So we decided to dig in. Amy Orban was lead author of that study. She's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Cambridge now, but she was a graduate student when we spoke to her in February. So, Amy, congratulations. Here's a condensed version of our conversation. You are certainly not uh, the first to ask and investigate uh, whether social media has a negative impact on teens' well-being. What did you see missing from the existing body of evidence? I think mainly that the body of evidence is extremely conflicting. And one day you might read something that screen time is really inherently bad and catastrophic for teen mental health. On the other day, you might read or listen to something that says, oh, it's actually not that bad or it's actually positive. And as a researcher in the area, I was seeing all this conflicting evidence coming out. And what the work really tries to do is to figure out why we're not getting any clear answers. What specifically did you do differently to try to address the root causes of that debate as opposed to just being one more voice, one more study in that debate? A lot of the studies that have been referenced in this debate use openly available data sets. So as a researcher, I can actually go online and I can download them. And so I, instead of using just one data set, I've used three, both in the UK and the US. And what kind of data are we talking about? So this is um, data from over 300,000 adolescents. So they note down how good they're feeling and also how much of various digital technologies they're using. And this is kind of completely cross-sectional. So naturally, um, we are looking at them at one time point. So it's really hard to say what causes what. But we have this data and oftentimes, and this is how I felt before I started this kind of in-depth research, we think of analyzing the data almost like a a tool to see what the data is showing us. So kind of like a magnifying glass that we hold to the data and and we see what's going on. But actually what researchers have been showing for the last years is that data analysis is a lot more powerful and actually how we analyze the data can change what we see in the data sets we're looking at. And this is because researchers need to take huge amounts of decisions to even answer a very simple question, like what is the correlation between digital technologies and well-being? 
And what decisions they take can be biased by what they think they should be finding in the data set. And so these kind of unconscious or conscious biases lead them to analyze the data in specific ways, and that can, can really bias what the end result is. So kind of the long story short is that what I tried to do is I would simulate that, for example, we have a thousand different research groups, all with subtly different biases, and they all look at the same data set with the same research question. And what I showed is that they can actually find loads of different results. That's pretty concerning on its own, that that different researchers potentially using the same data in different ways would find such different results. How do you then get past that? It's Naturally, it's concerning, and we're currently going through a replication crisis in psychology that, as psychologists, we're really thinking about, you know, what what is holding our science back? And this is part of what is holding our science back, um, that we can bias our results by analyzing our data flexibly. Um, There are easy ways, actually, to safeguard ourselves as researchers against this. Part of it is to be extremely transparent, um, to share your code online, or to note down how you will analyze the data before you actually look at the data. Because then your unconscious or conscious biases can influence what actual decisions you take. Um, So these are actually quite simple safeguarding mechanisms we can put into place. And there is a real group of researchers now who are shouting out that this is what we need to do more broadly in the sciences. So Amy Orban, in the work that you did, you mentioned you had uh, these three different data sets and you tried to, to probe it in a whole lot of different ways. And in the end, you concluded that social media does have a, a negative uh, relationship with teen well-being, but that it's very small. It accounts for something like 0.4% of differences in teen well-being. Were you surprised by that result? Yes, I often, as a researcher, I feel like in I live in two completely different worlds. So I live in the world where I listen to the radio and I watch TV and I read the newspaper and talk to other people on the street and people are really concerned about social media. And on the other side, I live in the world where I work with this data on a daily basis and I keep on finding that the effects aren't as severely negative as we would definitely expect it to be from the amount of public conversation we're having. So it was definitely surprising as such. Um, Now that I look at it, you know, I've been working on this for now one and a half years. um, I do see that there are reasons why we're not finding um, these intense negative effects that have been proclaimed um, in the last years. And what are those reasons? I think, firstly, we are asking the wrong research questions. So... The question that we, I asked in the study and that multiple researchers have asked across the world is, does digital technology use affect adolescent well-being? I often liken this to asking, does eating sugar affect well-being? If we were a group of scientists trying to figure this out, we would probably quickly realize that we need to add more nuance into that research question to actually get some sort of actionable result because... The effect of eating sugar really depends on the person. So if we're talking about diabetics, the effect could be horrendous. But if we're talking about ultramarathon runners, it might be a huge boost to their performance. And also we need to think about what sorts of 
amounts and kinds of sugars we're talking about. Are we talking about a granola bar after a PE lesson for a child, or are we talking about a piece of chocolate cake every hour? And only if we take that into account will we start getting some sort of concrete and consistent results. And this is the same with digital technology use. We need to start thinking about what sorts of digital technologies are children using and also the individual differences that makes each adolescent unique. So I would expect that there are probably adolescents that are negatively affected by digital technologies and there are some that are positively affected. And the same, there might be some digital technologies that have a negative effect or some sorts of uses that have negative effects and some that have positive. And so by asking these general questions like, does digital technologies overall have a positive or a negative effect on adolescent well-being, we're averaging all this complexity. And so we're only finding very small negative effects, but that doesn't mean that there isn't that complexity. And I think what this work shows is that researchers really need to take that into account. And also parents and policymakers, that each digital technology use isn't the same, they're all unique, and each adolescent is unique, and probably they're all affected differently by their use and by what they actually use. Amy Orban of Oxford University, lead author of a recent study showing that social media's negative impact on teen well-being is smaller than widely thought. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Up next, it's two of my favorite conversations about climate change. Living Lab Radio continues after a short break. Welcome back to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. For our final episode, we're revisiting some highlights from the last few years. When I founded the show, I had just spent a year and a half writing a blog about climate change. It's been a prominent theme on Living Lab Radio, and it's what I'll be turning my attention to full-time next. So that's where we'll end this show. Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist at Texas Tech and an evangelical Christian, two parts of her identity that she blends seamlessly even as others suggest they should be incompatible. She also blends scientific reality with hope and optimism. At the end of 2018, we turned to her for a review of the year's developments in climate science and policy. A handful of rather damning reports had come out that fall, and we were looking for perspective— Here's some of the conversation. The further we go into the future, the greater the impacts. The reason we care about a changing climate is not because we have to push climate change further up our priority list and, you know, become a bunch of tree huggers. It's because climate change already affects everything that is at the top of our priority list. Climate change affects the economy. It affects our resources. It affects our health, the safety of the places where we live. It affects national security and something which I personally care very much about. It disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people right here in the U.S. as well as around the world. It exacerbates hunger and poverty, disease, lack of access to clean water, even the political instability that can lead to refugee crises. These are all exacerbated by a changing climate. As the the military calls it, climate change is a threat multiplier. The way that that UN report was uh, reported, the, the headlines coming out of that report, many of them set this kind of deadline of saying we have a, a decade or we have 12 years to address this problem. I wonder if you could respond to that way of summing up that report. Do you think that's accurate? I am not a fan of the the deadline approach. Here's the thing. 
First of all, it creates a sense of, well, if we, if we achieve the goal within 12 years, then everything's 100% okay. But if it's January 1st on the 13th year and we miss the boat, well, then it's all screwed and we might as well just give up. And that is completely <laughs> false. We are already seeing significant impacts today. And of course, the greater the change, the more impacts we see. But at the same time, if we can't meet the 12-year deadline, is it worth meeting a 13 or a 15 or a 20-year deadline? It absolutely is. The best summary that I've heard of the one and a half degree IPCC report is not that we only have 12 years to fix the world. Rather, the best summary I've heard is this. Every action matters. Every year matters. And most importantly, every choice matters. So for me, it's a case of not trying to, you know, just avert the worst. It's a case of recognizing that the planet really is in our hands and we have the ability to choose our future. I'm talking with climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe. So we've been talking about the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. And of course, uh, there was another round of UN climate negotiations uh, this month. Can you give us a sense of, of what actually happened there? Because, I mean, the, the U.S. has said that we are withdrawing from this. We're not officially out yet. We can't do that until 2020. Uh, the U.S. made a, a presentation about fossil fuels and, and kind of supporting fossil fuels at this U.N. talk. But in the end, there was an agreement. And, and we've heard some uh, kind of positive statements about that agreement from the Trump administration. So what came out of that and, and how does it square with the policies of the Trump administration? So each additional meeting of the Conference of Parties to the UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, that's what all these meetings are about, are now aimed at quantifying the contribution of different countries to meeting these goals. It's sort of like a potluck dinner. It's a potluck dinner where nobody really wants to bring enough food to the table. (laughs) And so we haven't quite got enough on the table to feed everybody adequately. Or in other words, we haven't got enough carbon emission reductions on the table to meet the one and a half or the two degree goals. Catherine Hayhoe, in the face of all of this, as a scientist who knows uh, the numbers and just how bad the situation is getting or could get and the ramifications of all of these decisions, you sound really upbeat. What keeps you optimistic? Well, I can tell you the science is not what gives me hope and the politics isn't either. Um, to a certain extent, not following some of the politics is, is helpful to, to keeping hopeful. But what does give me hope is what people are already doing. There are hundreds of millions of people around the world who are not only passionately committed to fixing this issue, but who are inventing and creating these amazing, incredible ways of getting energy in ways that don't produce heat-trapping gases, but are able to supply energy to some of the poorest parts of the world that currently do not have access to energy like we do here. There are people who are inventing amazing ways to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and to use it to create things from fuel to baking soda to building blocks. Um, There are people who are looking at social changes, changing the way that we live so we don't have to have so much energy to commute to, uh, to heat and cool our houses. Looking at 
uh, solutions that we might not realize are important. And Project Drawdown, if you haven't heard of that, Project Drawdown is a fantastic resource. They've actually gone through and listed the top 80 solutions to climate change because, as they say, there's no one silver bullet, but there's a lot of silver buckshot. And <laughs> some of the things on that list are things that you'd expect, you know, rooftop solar, offshore wind. But some of them are very surprising. The number three solution on their list is eliminating global food waste. Because we currently throw out about a third of the food that we produce, which could be feeding people who are hungry. But in addition, it also decays and produces heat-trapping gases. And then number six on the list is the education of women and girls in developing countries. Because that reduces infant mortality, it invests in the local economy, it enables women to um, successfully grow their food, run their own businesses, and it actually contributes to reducing future heat-trapping gases because it builds the economic viability of those key demographics. So that's where I find the hope. I find the hope in what people are doing, what people are envisioning. I don't find the hope in the science. I don't find the hope in the politics yet, but I do hope that by showing that this is an issue that affects every single one of us here on this planet, and there are positive, hopeful, viable solutions if we act now, that's how we can change the tide. That's Catherine Hayhoe of Texas Tech University. Apartheid and climate change. The connection may not be immediately apparent, but for Steve Kerwood, the two are intimately linked. Steve Kerwood began his career as an investigative reporter covering apartheid in South Africa and race relations in the United States. But then his focus shifted. In 1991, the year before the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was established, he launched Living on Earth, the public radio news magazine about the environment. And that show has covered the twists and turns of both climate science and policy ever since. We sat down in August of 2016 to connect the dots between civil rights and climate action. We'll join the conversation with Steve's thoughts on why action has lagged so far behind the science. It doesn't really feel to most people like things are changing all that rapidly, you know. If you step off, if you see a bus coming when you want to step off the curb, you know, the danger seems imminent. But if the bus is miles and miles away doesn't really seem like it poses a risk. You feel like, oh, there'll be plenty of time to get out of the way. Trouble is these natural systems have such long periods of development that um, there will come a tipping point, and it's hard to know because we've never been through this as a species. The last time the planet was this warm was many millions of years ago. Um, we don't know when we'll get into this next climate regime. So... Uh, it's tough for human beings to respond to a danger that really doesn't, when you look out the window, feel all that dangerous. Given the, the partisan nature of the discussion at this point, how do you, in your reporting, uh, avoid party lines? How do you avoid seeming partisan yourself when you report on climate change? Well, there's a partisan divide, Heather, but I'm going to quote uh, Bill McKibben here. There's been a nonpartisan agreement to do pretty much nothing on the climate since uh, George Bush uh, I agreed to uh, the 92 Rio uh, Treaty and then Bill Clinton, actually. It was ratified by by the Senate when Clinton came into office. Pretty much since then, we've done between little and nothing, and it really hasn't mattered 
so much which party has been in power. Um, Republicans, if you overgeneralize, you can say Republicans have maybe been more vocal in pushback. But in fact, when there was a Democratic majority in both the House and Senate and in the White House, there was not. uh, Legislation couldn't get through. So um, the divide is really between those politicians who are concerned about offending the fossil fuel industry and those who aren't. Uh, There are many more of them, I think, in the Republican Party as opposed to the Democrats, but they're in both parties. Steve, you're a Quaker. That's a community with a a strong tradition of social activism. Uh, We've already mentioned that when you were younger, you marched for civil rights, for uh, women's rights, for various different issues. Are you politically active about environmental issues at this point? Not allowed. Obviously, uh, I care about the environment. If I were covering sports, uh, it would be a little crazy if I thought that it wasn't appropriate for grown men to chase a small piece of horse hide around a field or something. <laughs> or, or, or if I covered business, it would be silly if I were some ardent Marxist who thinks that capitalism is crazy. So, yes, I believe that we should have a safe and healthy uh, environment for all of us. But um, as a journalist, I have to keep my eyes open. I can't take up – I have my own opinions, but uh, I, I don't serve my listeners if I just simply go with uh, you know, my opinions as to how I think things should be done. Um, that's not how journalism works. It's supposed to go out, get the story, let the chips fall wherever they may. You have mentioned so many challenges and roadblocks um, and the quite scary prospect of an unlivable climate for humans. Are you optimistic that we will be able to still have that working ocean and those wonderful experiences that you just mentioned in future generations? Well, of course I'm optimistic. Because there's, there's little choice. Look, America was begun with a promise of democracy, but we wound up with this crazy system called slavery. It's horrible. And we got in, it, was, it was very disruptive uh, when America got rid of, finally got rid of chattel slavery. It was turned into a horrible war. But we did it. And one of the problems with slavery was that um, the value of slaves towards the end, by 1860, um, the slaves on a plantation were worth more than the land. And the price had been bid up by four times what it was, say, in 1830. And the slave owners in the South were only 4% of the population. Only 4%. So they were in this speculative binge. They were, you know, really, they're speculating in people. They needed more territory. The price kept going up and up, so they needed to open up places like Texas and Missouri to have more plantations. And it was a bubble, a bubble created of people. Really, you know, not exactly the most moral thing to do, right? It broke, and it was really difficult when it broke, but we broke it. We got through it. We're still healing from some of it, but we got through it. Back then, women didn't have the right to vote, in many cases, even hold property. We got through that. Nelson Mandela was in jail for over 20 years. And yet he came out and became president of South Africa and, and, and led South Africa 
in a in a restorative direction. And you can just look back in history and see challenge after challenge after challenge that our species has been confronted with and we have met and we've come out on the other side better. So I'm optimistic because when we deal with this climate issue, at the same time we're going to have to balance our consumption with our population and those demands, give, have adequate lives, uh, quality of life for really everybody on the planet, this business of having a split. Because right now the, some of the poorest parts of the planet are, have the crown jewels to protect the environment, the tropical forests. You know, in Brazil and Central Africa and in Southeast Asia, that's, that, that, that's a huge uh, carbon sink for the rest of us. And those aren't, necess- aren't particularly rich places. So when we come right with a political process to deal with climate, we'll come right with our social process. We will be a, uh, a more loving and supportive species. We will, to get along on this, we will, have to, we will have to get along. So I think the other side of this is really exciting. Now the question is, are we going to have to go so deep into this problem that the solution is as ugly and brutal as the Civil War was to end slavery. Hmm. When we decide that we can no longer own nature uh, just the way we decided we could no longer own people, are we going to be so deep into it that the, um, that the damage to get through this will just be horrific? That's what I pray that we don't have to go through. But I do know that on the other side of this, we will be strong and amazing and wonderful. Strong and amazing and wonderful. Words to end on. That was Steve Kerwood. And for the final time, this is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. Thank you so much for listening. Living Lab Radio is produced by WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH in Boston. It's produced by me, Elsa Partan, and Heather Goldstone is executive producer. Theme music by Stellwagen Symphonette.